about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. It's Good Accepted Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Captain America Civil War, released in April 2016, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake, Martin Scorsese's interview in The Last Samurai, or Jennifer Anderson in Storks instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Captain America Civil War when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. There's a lot going on, and not much story. Some characters are essentially only there to get thrown around a bit, and the rift between the Avengers never feels that real, nor indeed does a threat from Zemo or from the other Winter Soldiers. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Captain America Civil War is comedian, musician, writer, broadcaster, pretty much everything else you can think of, Mitch Ben. Mitch, where can people find you? Right now, I am mainly on Patreon, because that's pretty much all that I can do at the moment. Still got my column in the New European newspaper that comes out every Thursday. I'm doing lots of stuff on my youtube channel i've i've got a podcast of my own which you graced us on about six weeks ago called confined to barracks which for the historians listening in in the year 30 something we're recording this one during the middle of the uh the plague lockdown of 2020 so uh tim and i are both a bit frayed around the edges you may need to cut us a bit of slack there future people well speaking of frayed around the edges i'm expecting a long answer to this question mitch what happens in captain america civil war basically uh fundamentally what happens is this somebody who lost his family in the battle at the end of the age of ultron somebody whose family was collateral damage at the battle of the age of ultron is plotting to turn the adventures against each other and he does that's kind of it plot wise one of the things amazing things about this movie and again it's one of those you don't really notice into the second time around the bad guy wins and the good guys lose the bad guy's plan goes almost without a hitch literally the only thing he doesn't achieve is blowing his own brains out because T'Challa stops him, and he ends up being sealed in a glass box by Martin Freeman. I think Civil War is the Marvel Universe's sort of Sergeant Pepper slash American Idiot slash Acton baby moment. I think it's the moment it becomes something else, something bigger than what it's been, while at the same time staying what it is. I think this is an... Ext- I was watching in last night, and I'm, again, astonished by how well put together this film is, by what it att- attempts to achieve and how well it achieves and maybe maybe i would look less fondly upon it had it not come out right on top of batman v superman which is kind of the same idea done really badly yeah you're right a hell of a lot happens but i get one of the things i've struck with it works as a bit of storytelling you're right in terms of the plot is either insanely complicated or ridiculously simple in terms of incident it's replete in terms of plot it is a bad guy conspires to make the avengers fall out and succeeds that's it 
but in terms of incident, you're right. But in terms of again a technical achievement, I mean this this is where I think the Russo brothers showed that they were the guys to be put in charge when it came to doing the Infinity War saga. Because um, not only could you know it, 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 their skill with interweaving plot strands, managing somehow to stay out of each other's way and feed into each other rather than just distract you from each other, which is what often happens. Their sense of story geography and their sense of scene geography is magnificent. And also, it doesn't shy away from the emotion of what's going on. One of the things about this is, oddly enough, of course, it turns out that the real showdown you're waiting for is the battle in the lab in Siberia. But the showdown that the movie feels like it's building up towards is the battle at the airport. And you feel, not only is from a, a technical bit of action cinema, it's magnificent. The scene geography is perfect. You've got about 12 principal characters there, all having little battles with each other, splitting off, having little battles with each other. The scene geography is completely consistent. At any given time, you know where every Everyone is in relationship to each other and in relation to the environment. But also, you actually get the underlying sadness of what's going on here. This is not just awesome. This, you know, you're not just watching. Hey, superheroes fighting and using all their past. It's also really sad what's happening, and you get the sadness of what's happening. That these are friends falling out, and the fact that they're trying not to hurt each other, and that you know, the awful jaw-dropping conclusion to that scene is when one of them does actually get hurt and like really badly hurt in a way that they're not going to be able to retcon for the whole of the rest of the film series. It's an extraordinary piece of film, and it just takes so much on that it should drop the ball at some point. And for my money, it just never does. Yeah, all right, here's something I'm going to say right now. Martin Scorsese hasn't seen this one, <laughs> okay? Because you can't, you can't sit through that and say it's not real cinema. You haven't seen that one. You saw the poster and thought, dumb superhero movie. Yeah, it's a superhero movie, but it's one of the least dumb movies I've ever seen. It's building on what Winter Soldier achieves. Winter Soldier manages to be a really tight conspiracy spy movie that happens to be about comic book heroes. You know, as, as you and I have discussed, the main reason that the Marvel movies work and the DC movies don't is that the Marvel movies are not ashamed to be about comic book. There seems to be this sort of sense of embarrassment with it, except Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman embraced it but but there seems to be with dc this kind of weird self-conscious oh these aren't just comic book movies no no these are dark and brooding and do i'll piss off they're comic book movies and you can make good comic book movies and that's what the marvel movies are they absolutely embrace the fact that these are comic book movies they're just really good comic book movies that have all kinds of emotional layers and have all kinds of thematic layers. You can have those and still be about people in red, white and blue costumes punching the shit out of it. You can still do that. And I think this movie achieves that magnificently. There is so much going on, but at no point do you actually feel like there's too much going on. You always know where everybody is. You always know what everybody's thinking. Maybe because Civil War is more directly based on a comic book. It's not beat for beat based on the comic book where Iron Man and Captain America fall out. But but it is at least broadly based on the comic book of the same name in which Iron Man and Captain America fall out, the cover of which is that shot of Iron Man blasting Captain America's shield at point blank range and the pair of them just sort of frozen in action like that, which they do reproduce in the Siberia fight just to go, yeah, we've read it, you know. <laughs> 
We know we know what we're doing. It's that one. We didn't just do the title. We've actually read it. Tony and Steve fall out over an actual point of principle, and they've both got a really valid point. I'm not sure whose side I'm on as regards the Sokovia Accords. And that's great, because it means you can sympathise with both of them, and you need to sympathise with both of them. Otherwise, the fight in the airport doesn't hurt. Otherwise, when Tony and Steve are actually trying to kill each other in some way, Steve's still trying not to kill Tony, but Tony's definitely trying to kill Steve, at least if only to get the Bucky. That's got to hurt, and it really does hurt. And the other thing about this is, I forget what certificate it is, but they do the violence like violence, particularly the bits I bit in the right at the end when the suit fails and the helmet pops open and Tony's just lying there in the remains of the suit. He's pitting blood out of every hole in his face. He really looks like a man who's had the shit beaten out of him by two super soldiers. You know, the violence hurts in this movie. Oh, but that's the other thing is that weirdly, the laws of physics apply. You have characters in it who can do extraordinary things, who can perform extraordinary feats. Some of them can just plain fly. Some of them can fly through mechanical means. Some of them can fly through sort of mystical means. Some of them like vision can fly because they're not really there and they're just a sort of, you know, projected AI whatever. But all the time when things move and when things land and when things smack into each other you get the feeling that the laws of physics still apply. Bodies in motion move the way they do. Things land the way they would even if the people get up rather faster than a real person would if they just smashed into something as hard as they just did. As such the extraordinary feats feel believable because it's not just that the laws of physics have been suspended it's just that you're in a universe where the laws of physics still apply just some people are unusually fast strong and resilient so that's why when you know chris evans stops a helicopter taking off with his arms you can kind of believe that's possible it's an extraordinary film this it really i've, I've forgotten just how bloody good it was watching that and of course two great things it does as we've discussed one of the real curses of the superhero flick is the origin story is the fact that you have to spend the whole of the first movie essentially doing an origin story that by and large people already know you know and one of the things this is really clever of this is first of all it reintroduces peter parker and doesn't bother with the origin story because it's fucking spider-man all right and there is literally nobody out there who doesn't know why peter parker has spider powers i'm sorry there is no you've watched two whole movies about it in the past 15 years the comics started in what 1962 you know you you know why peter parker has spider powers and most of you also know that he fucked up and uncle ben died which is why he's guilt stricken and that whole thing is alluded to exactly as much as it needs to be and then let's just get the fuck on with it spider-man's here now there's also a sound plot reason for why spider-man's here which is that tony wants to recruit somebody with entirely non-lethal weaponry peter's got the webs he needs somebody you can just detain the other guys without actually hospitalizing them if it's all possible but the other thing it does is give black panther a head start by doing his origin story as a subplot so that means that when kugler comes to do black panther a couple of years later he can just get the fuck on with it and make a black panther movie without having to spend the first hour and a half explaining what wakanda is explaining why the king is the black panther explaining how t'challa became king when his dad died you know it's just you know no it's it's, it's done black panther's up and running so kugler can just make whatever movie he wants to make now so in that respect it's almost addressing the inherent weaknesses of superhero movies and solving them as it goes yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the level of violence in it because one thing that hadn't occurred to me i mean we pretty much comprehensively covered what's using my second question which would have been how much you know about <laughs> civil war before you saw this it's quite evident you've read civil war but i don't think of this film as being violent because the original comic is yeah. so dark for anyone who's not read it basically it's almost the whole of the marvel universe get pulled into what starts as a split in the avengers 
including people who originally say they won't be involved, like Doctor Strange, like Spider-Man, Cloak and Dagger. They all get drawn in. But the real key moment that just defines that for me is there's a bit where, because initially the Punisher says he won't get involved, and then they need his expertise again to Stark Tower. At that point, they've been joined by a delegation of villains who have come along to Captain America cap in hand and said, we don't agree with what's going on either, we want to help you. The Punisher sees them and just shoots them all dead in cold blood (laughs) because he's been after them for a long time. Within his moral code, that's fine. And compared to that, this film seems like a walk in the park. Yeah, yeah, Frank Castle gets a shot, he's taken it. It's as simple as that. It's not so much that it's violent, it's that the violence that happens has consequences. That's the thing. I mean, the first time I watched this, I watched this with my kids last night and I seem to call watching it with my kids a couple of years ago when it first came out on digital. And the only bit in it, which my littlest, Astrid, who when she first saw it will have been about nine, the only bit that she actually found distressing is when the maid finds the dead body in the bath. You know, she didn't find any of the rest of the violence disturbing, but somehow that was just a bit close to home. It was just a bit too much like in a real murder movie, just finding a dead guy in a bathtub in a hotel room. That was the only bit she found really creepy was just when the maid finds the dead guy in the bath. And I remember thinking, yeah, but that's because he's a real dead guy and he's really dead. Like I said, the violence, it's not that the violence is extreme. It's not extreme. Most of it is, you know, cartoon violence, except like I say, with this weird level of respect being paid to the laws of physics. It looks like it hurts and it has consequences and you feel it all the way. Th- you, you feel a sense of sadness when they square off at the airport, particularly when they do that charge at each other and they realize that no, nobody's backing down. We're actually going to have to start hurting each other here. You know, I mean, they actually get a couple of, you know, jokes out of it. You know, we're still friends. Are. And you get the feeling that there is a sense of loss here. So it makes sense when Natasha switches sides at the last moment, you know exactly why she's done that. Even bringing Paul Rudd into the middle of it somehow doesn't, you know, because Paul Rudd can't help but be a genial presence. That's the whole point of Paul Rudd. Even bringing him in somehow, I don't know, it, just, it makes it work even better. Like Ant-Man, his big wide-eyed sort of expression of delight when he turns into a normal Ant-Man, you know, and then, oh, and that's the other thing. I mean, I, I love the fact that they tried it a bit with the Andrew Garfield movies, but those movies are such a fucking mess. It didn't really make any difference. Spider-Man's finally a blabbermouth. That's the yes. one thing. The one thing which disappointed me about the Sam Raimi movies is that Peter hardly says a word while he's in the suit. And the thing is, Peter is shy and nervous and stammers. Spider-Man can't shut up. It's like Peter finally gains all the confidence that he doesn't have as Peter when he puts the spider suit on, and they absolutely nail this. I don't know how many fights you've been in, kid, but there's not normally this much talking. You know, I love. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man's a blabbermouth. That's the whole point about Spider-Man. He monologues all the time. And of course, they have that ingenious idea of finally putting some expression into the eyepieces. Because of course, in the comic books and the cartoons, the eyepieces have always been expressive. It's never really made any sense why the eyepieces in the mask are so expressive, why they open wide when he's surprised, when they narrow when he's angry. But that by giving them sort of little adjustable irises, finally the eyepieces in the mask are expressive.
I love what they do with Spider-Man in this movie. Yeah, it is a bit meta, the fact that they actually point out that Aunt May is way hotter than you're expecting her to be. <laughs> but it's also the fact that you think, well, wait a minute, Peter's 15. At this point, he's canonically 15. Why, therefore, need his aunt be 70? His aunt should probably be about 45. And lo and behold, there's Marissa Tomei, I think it was about 48, but looking about 45, you know. You know, why wouldn't he have a hot middle-aged aunt rather than a silver-haired old lady? I mean, I guess the silver-haired old lady thing was largely a sort of a device to make the reader and Peter more obsessively protective of him, particularly after Uncle Ben's gone, but you know. Well, one thing that I really like about it is I think it's kind of pointing towards where they were going with Infinity War and Endgame, where you get, as you've just touched on with Spider-Man and Ant-Man, all these plot strands that stay true to their franchise without affecting the overall narrative. I mean, the Ant-Man one in particular, you're saying how great it is that it fits in. Well, kind of it basically picks up from the first Ant-Man movie is essentially a crime caper movie. And yeah. it follows on from that with the fact that Scott might be a good guy, he might be a corporate saboteur, he is still little better than the mercenary in some respects. Yeah. Captain America says, come fight with us, he does. It then leads into the next one, which is kind of a more of a romantic comedy than anything, where yeah. basically the whole gist of that is Hope is upset because he didn't ask her to go with him when they fought yeah. with Captain America. That eventually emerges. So they picked up from that and put that in the next Ant-Man film. And then you got, you know, the whole Peter Parker just crashes in. Like, doesn't he actually say, whoa, who's that new guy about Ant-Man? Yeah. Which, that is such, it is such a contrast to the tone of, you know, the actual battle between these long-term associates. But it doesn't detract from it. It doesn't distract no. from it. Everything fits around everything else really well. Yeah, and the fact that Peter's just totally bugging out about getting to be a superhero. He's got this fantastic new upgraded suit. And the fact that, you know, Tom Holland, who at the time I think was about 19, plays him very convincingly. But of course, the weird thing about Tom Holland, of course, is I know his dad. I've known Dominic since the 90s, you know, because he's a comedian on the same circuit as me. And, you know, spider dad, I call him now. Um, <laughs> you know, from a standing start and against the fact that we just had two whole big budget Spider-Man franchises. You know, he absolutely nails it. I think it's extraordinary, this movie. And yeah, you're right. It shows where it's going. Because, I mean, the ultimate team of that, without want to jump the gun or steal somebody else's thunder for when you get round to doing Infinity War. I mean, I loved Endgame, but for me, Infinity War just blew me away as a bit of storytelling in that it exists in about five or six completely incompatible genres all at the same time. You've got kind of sci-fi comic book action with Iron Man out in space and the Guardians. You've got space opera. You've got proper kind of mythological fantasy with Thor getting his axe made. You know, you've got spy movie stuff going on with Cap. You've got Neil Gaiman-ish urban fantasy going on with Doctor Strange. You know, you've got all these things that really shouldn't be able to coexist in the same movie and they fit together absolutely seamlessly and it's it's just this really shouldn't be working anything like as well as it is and then Endgame just kind of ties that all together also it's the courage of its convictions that it has it does stuff that you'd think that a studio would be cagey about doing or that a test audience must have its doubts about but it's like no trust us you know we know what we're doing with this well there's one thing that I'm not sure they quite knew what they were doing which is something I can never really get past which is I mean there's great casting throughout this you know all the way down from obviously Tom Holland and the Spider-Man, right the way down to things like Alfred Woodward, who plays Mariah Dillard in Luke Cage, appears here as the mother of one of the victims, who the it's the implied yeah. she's a relative of Mariah. It's not directly implied, just in the way, you know, in the sort of yeah. makeup of the universe. Jim Rush basically appears as Dean Pelton from Community in it. You know, there's great things like that. The thing I have a real problem is, Sebastian Stan, who plays Bucky, and Daniel Bruhl, who plays Helmut Zemo, yeah. don't look that dissimilar to each other. <laughs> 
And that sometimes, at some point, gets a little confusing. Well, I mean, the thing is, at one point, Zemo passes himself off as Bucky, doesn't he? In order yes. to incriminate him. So that, you probably want them to be similar kind of types. I mean, the thing is, th- their look is completely different. You know, Bucky's sort of rocking the long hair and stubble thing for the whole movie. Daniel Brühl I've been a fan of ever since he did Goodbye Lenin, which is one of Clara Mayek's favourite movies, because she was living in Berlin when the wall came down, and it's all about Berlin when the wall came down. And of course, he... Uh, doesn't get to meet Hemsworth in this one, but he plays Nicky Loud opposite Hemsworth playing James Hunt in Rush, which is a tremendous movie. And I, I don't know. I mean, the casting for my... I mean, all right, the single greatest bit of casting in movie history was Robert Downey as Tony Stark. Yeah. For my money, a big element in why the Marvel Universe works at all is Robert Downey as Tony Stark. I think he sets the tone for all of them, even the ones he's not in. It's brilliant because it gives it just enough inbuilt irony to be able to play itself absolutely straight. These movies aren't going to work if they're too ironic. These movies aren't going to work if they're too knowing and postmodern and smirky. There comes to a point where you've actually got to respect the material and play it straight. And by having this gabbling smartass as one of the main characters, it's one of the reasons Star Wars works is because Han Solo's there. Yeah, one of the reasons that Star Wars, the original trilogy works is because there's somebody in the movies who thinks it's all bullshit. Tony Stark doesn't necessarily think that everything's bullshit, but he's constantly smirkingly undermining everything. (laughs) You've got just enough irony built into the mix. That means that Chris Evans gets to play Cap absolutely Christopher Reeve straight. Because you can't do a postmodern Cap. You can't do an ironic Cap. The whole point about Captain America is his superpowers is not the fact that the serum made him fast and strong. His superpower is his absolute moral clarity. That's his superpower. That he really is as good as everybody thinks he is. That's the point of Captain America. That's his superpower. I like the fact that Brühl manages to be sort of brooding and sinister, but he's also kind of weirdly boyishly innocent looking. You sense that his grievance is real. And of course, the fact that, you know, like I say, he wins. He absolutely wins. This is the first Marvel movie with a proper sort of downbeat ending. By the end of it, the Avengers are all over. At least one of them is paralyzed. Half of them are in jail, even if it looks like they're in the process of getting sprung as the credits roll. It's really gone wrong by the end of this movie. The bad guy's scheme to split the Avengers up has gone like a charm and everything's fucked by the end of this film which I think you can almost look as a sort of a test run for the complete jaw dropper of an ending of Infinity War well I mean that's underlined by the fact that you get two post credit scenes which completely illustrate the two extremes of the film because the first one you've got despite everything that's happened because we've not even touched on really the whole thing is that Bucky is kind of by his programming to reactivate when he was a Winter Soldier brainwashing to killing T'Challa's father and T'Challa at the end forgives him to the extent of taking to Wakanda to work on a way to undo the programming. And so that's the heart of the movie. And this one, Ant-May is consoling Peter Parker on apparently having had the shit kicked out of him at school. He's come back all bruised from Leipzig. And she's saying, who was it? Oh, it's just this guy uh, from Brooklyn. (laughs) It's this guy from Brooklyn. You don't know him. Did he have any friends? Yeah. One of his friends is like really big. He says, I hope you, I hope you managed to get a couple of swings. In. Oh yeah, I got a couple of swings. In. And then she goes out the room and he finds the coded message in the web shooter from Tony. It projects the kind of Spider-Man mask onto the ceiling. Yeah, again, again, it's, it is illustrating, you know, the scope because on the one hand we have immortal super soldier and immortal super soldier's pal being hidden by African king in mythical African kingdom. And then it's kid in Queens making excuses about having been beaten up to his auntie yeah but it's all coexisting perfectly happily within the same 
plot. The thing is, uh, you and I have talked about this before, nothing underlines the extraordinary achievement of what the Marvel Universe does. It's the signal failure of everybody else to emulate it. DC went about it ass backwards and fucked it up in three movies. But also, I would say Star Wars. I'd say Star Wars has come unstuck from trying to do the Marvel Universe. Because I think it exhibits a weird misunderstanding, of again, of its own franchise. Because the thing about Marvel Universe is the whole thing is only, you know, literally 12 years old. It only starts in Iron Man 2008. So it was able to completely define itself and have a kind of a sliding scale of what sort of movies that you're going to... So first of all, the movies will come out at the rate of two or three year, and you're just going to have to get used to that. And they're all going to be directed by different people. They're going to be sort of vastly tonally divergent. Some of them are going to be these huge tentpole, multi-character showdowns like this, like the original Avengers, like the two-part of Infinity War and Endgame. Some of them aren't going to be kind of mid-scale origin stories like the Doctor Strange movie, like to a degree Black Panther, the Black Panther sort of becomes quite epic in its sweep. And then some of them are just going to be sort of fun little character pieces like the Ant-Man movies and like thus far the Spider-Man movies. Oddly enough, Spider-Man, although commercially he's far and away the biggest copy of the franchise, his movies are the most intimate. That kind of works. You know, it's it's. I, I like the fact that just because it's Spider-Man, we don't have to make the Spider-Man movies the epics because that's not really what the character lends itself to. He lends himself to basically these John Hughes movies with with, with superhero shit going on interrupting his adolescence. You know, that, that, I think that's really clever. So you can have lesser and greater Marvel movies and then star wars tried to emulate that but the thing is i think that misunderstands what stars has made it because star wars as a franchise is over 40 years old now and the thing is there have only been two six-year periods prior to the disney takeover when star wars movies are coming out on a regular basis with 77 to 83 and then 99 to 2005 and there'd only ever been six star wars movies we will not count the ewok movies you know there'd only ever been six star or the holiday special there'd only ever been six star wars movies and the whole point of star wars movies is they are always event movies they are event with star wars movies are a big deal they're event movies they come out one every three years and they're a big fucking deal when they come out even the bad ones they're a big deal and i don't think that that really then adapts itself 40 years later to and now they're going to come out once every six months and some of them are going to be wacky space comedies and some of them are going to be grudgy little war movies and some of them are going to be there i don't know if star wars you know really reinvented itself that successfully i think star wars feels to me like it should still be big event movies i think that's why when for example solo comes out and everybody decides it's it's failed no i think solo was meant to be ant-man you know solo was meant to be one of the not that big a deal star was just the bit of fun star wars movie but because it comes out and doesn't open as big as force awakens does somehow it's died on its whole and it's like well no not all the marvel movies make a billion dollars because not all of them are supposed to make a billion dollars some of them are just meant to introduce plot elements that then get incorporated into the ones that do make a billion dollars but meanwhile the dc universe it just again it went about it ass backwards it's one of the the ingenious things about all these movies is that they do oddly enough this possibly works less well as a standalone movie than a lot of them do you could watch this not having seen any of the others but you kind of have to pay attention and kind of take their word for it a lot as regards who everybody is and what's happened in the previous avengers movies but by and large the marvel movies they always seem to work very hard on making them work as standalones first and parts of the expanded universe second whereas dc and you know and certainly the most obvious failed example is when universal tried to do this dark universe thing they start with the universe in mind and everything's kind of contributing towards that to the point where the films don't actually work on their own that well and really tip their hand when they you know do it in a really obvious clod hopping way like the bit in batman and superman when wonder woman finds the trailers for flash aquaman and 
Gun Cyborg on, on a floppy disk somewhere. That's really clumsy world building. It really is. Whereas the world building of this is A, it's clever, and B, it's secondary. Yeah, and that, that I think is one of the reasons they pull it off as well as they do. It's an extraordinary piece of work, this film. It really is. I was, I was just blown away. And, you know, the, the geography and the action sequences. The scene in Germany, which ends up with the foot chase through the tunnel. You end up with three superhumans running through the traffic and running faster than the traffic. And, and then you get those little sort of John Woo moments when Bucky knocks the guy off his bike, flips the bike through the air, jumps onto it and sets off in the opposite direction in one fluid movement. And it's such a big film that we've not even really had time to touch on quite a few things from it, like the letter to Tony Stank, like Spider-Man's plan based on this really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back, like Spider-Man being a YouTube star. I mean, there's the whole romance between Scarlet Witch and Vision and Howard Stark recognising Bucky in the 1991 flashback and the setup for Barth, which is the, well, that's the codename for system that comes back in Spider-Man Far From Home and there's another dreadful BBC News mock-up. I mean, there's so much going on in this film. I mean, you are right. You know, Martin Scorsese did not see this. Ken Loach did not see this. Jennifer Aniston, we don't know whether she saw it or not. Maybe she auditioned to be in it and wasn't in it and that's the story there. But, I mean, if any of you haven't seen it, you know, see it. I mean, you might be a little bit dazzled and thrown, but it is such a big film. That's all I can say about it. Okay, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now and I suspect we're going to get quite an answer to this which is Mitch if on the basis of a recent catastrophe you could force a certain profession to have to register with the authorities who would then control their actions what would you use it for? (laughs) The White House and the authority in question would be the Avengers That sounds pretty I think, good to me. I think the, the Avengers should be taking over the, the White House and the CDC even as we speak. I think Tony Stark should be taking over the CDC and Captain America should be taking over the White House. Are you suggesting that Scarlet Witch would accidentally drop a building on Donald Trump? No, I'm suggesting Scarlet Witch would deliberately drop a building on Donald Trump. <laughs> and I don't think there'd be as much comeback from that as written this <laughs> Mitch, thank you, and Excelsior. Excelsior. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of This Good Accepted Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.